Good morning. Uh, it's always great to see Dad in his element, isn't it? And uh, hopefully I haven't scared too many of you off uh, when he comes back next week. Well, I, did, I, t- I told you last week that um, preaching on the nature of discipleship uh, was not the best way to get people uh, to come in through the doors of the church. It's a hard word. Abandonment of self, abandonment of will, loving friends and family and things less than Christ not allowing those things to stand between you and your relationship with God, counting the cost, uh, not entering into it uh, uh, unwittingly or, or unknowing or under false pretense, but, but recognizing what God is calling the believer to and recognizing the eternal implications of all of these things. Well, After Jesus has taught that lesson on discipleship, there were amongst this group of people gathered a group who was unwilling to count the cost. There were amongst this large group of people gathered together some who decided that they knew the character of God. They knew what God was looking for in people. They knew who was in and who was out, and they thought that they held the keys to the kingdom. What is funny is that Jesus hands the keys uh, to the kingdom over to a bunch of fishermen from Galilee, a great insult to uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. You know, when Jesus turns to the disciples and says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, he's handing them the keys to the kingdom. But the point here is that there is this influential group that is creating theological issues with the doctrine of God, and so Jesus comes to correct those misunderstandings. He comes to set the record straight, to right the wrongs. So after Jesus' challenging teaching on what it looks like to be his disciple, the people who were drawing near to Jesus were tax collectors and sinners. They wanted to hear more, but the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumble and they say, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And so Jesus, because of that, tells three parables. Jesus tells parables because it speaks directly to the offender if they have an ear to hear. And it addresses the character of God for everyone who is listening, which was being misunderstood and miscommunicated by the religious leaders of the day. And so as we look at this particular parable today of the lost sheep, and and as Dad returns home next week, and we're both teaching through these three parables 
over these next several weeks, it is my prayer that we would see them with clarity. It is my prayer that we would not come to them from a position of familiarity. It is my prayer that we would not come to them from a position of arrogance, assuming that we know everything, but that all of us would see Jesus' teaching for what it is and that the force of the lesson would be felt and received with hearts that desire to learn and grow in grace. Because I am not preaching this message for people outside of here. I am preaching this message for us inside these walls who have gathered together to sit under the authority of this Word. It's a message for us. He who has an ear, let him hear. And so we continue in our series in Luke's Gospel. And I will ask if you will stand with me to read... Again, I'll read it. It's only seven verses. And this comes to us from Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, 1623 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Let's pray. Father, we have gathered here to sit under the authority of Your Word, that You would teach us, that Your Holy Spirit would minister to us, that that He would open our eyes to see truths in Your Word, and Father, that they would penetrate, that we would not have hardened hearts, but, Father, they would be softened and that they would receive the teaching you are giving us. So, Father, may each and every one of us in this room have ears to hear, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So, at the front here, we need to understand, these are the questions that I ask when I read through a little passage like this, and I start saying, okay, well, Tax collectors and sinners at the, at the beginning here, they, they're important, right? So I, I want to know more about who are the tax collectors and who are the sinners. What does he mean by this? Because in these days, the tax collector is the lowest of the low. And I guess some things never change. <laughs> it, it is still April, right? Yeah, although I think they pushed it back. Uh, in fact, it's funny, when I was doing research on this, and, and, and I, I realized how instrumental, I know this sounds crazy, how instrumental taxes have been in world history. We would never know who Gandhi was without taxes and, and his fight for liberation for India from the British Empire. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have America, right? The Boston Tea Party was over taxation. We wouldn't have uh, Alexander the Great. Uh, conquering most of the known world because he was funded by taxes from Greece. I mean, it just, the list goes on and on. It's actually quite terrifying if you think about it. 
where are those dollars going? <laughs> that wasn't a political statement. Please do not misquote me on that. But why were the tax collectors so despised in Jesus' day? In the Jewish community, the, the tax collector was seen as a collaborator with the, with the occupying Romans. They were traitors. And then, let's just consider the taxes that they were issuing on people. Here's just a very small snippet. There was a personal income tax. There was a poll tax just for existing. So, men between the ages of 14 and 65 were taxed for being alive. Women, oh, okay. Women between the age of, uh, is that my pacemaker going off? Uh, women between the age of 12 and 65. There was a land tax, one-tenth of all grain that was grown, uh, one-fifth of all uh, wine or oil. There was a duty tax. There was a tax on your cart. There was a tax for each wheel on your cart, and there was a tax for each animal that was pulling your cart. There was a tax on all articles bought and sold. There was a, a, a tax, import tax, an export tax. There was, a tax collector could set up a booth on the side of a road and make people take off their loads off the cart and then tax them discriminately or indiscriminately. Robbers and murderers were considered in the same category as these people. Not only were they traitors, but they were often extortionists. So they would line their own pockets by taxing higher than whatever the, the amount was supposed to be. And so, so a lot of them could become quite wealthy by, by doing this through ex extortion. In fact, there was a story uh, of a man who went through Rome, and he found a statue built in honor of an honorable tax collector. That's how uh, unlikely that was to find that. They were therefore, because of this, they were kept out of the synagogue. And we see this working out in Luke chapter 18 when you see the, the prayer of the Pharisee and the publican or the tax collector, right? They were not allowed into any of the Jewish festivals. They were not allowed into any of the Jewish feasts. When someone became a tax collector, they were in essence and in reality becoming a total outcast, if a Jewish person was walking down the street and a tax collector was walking towards them, that Jewish person was to cross to the other side of the street to avoid them. In fact, the scribes actually had a, a distance that you had to keep away from the tax collector. I think you get the picture here. The other group uh, associating and drawing near to Jesus was, is described as sinners. Well, are we not all sinners? So what is this describing? These are the immoral people. They, they hold occupations that the scribes, again, would hold to be incompatible with keeping God's law. They were sinners who were clearly sinners. And Jesus comes down from heaven to seek and save these lost ones. This is one of Luke's primary thrusts in his gospel account. It's Jesus, the Son of Man, to emphasize his humanity, as opposed to Jesus, the Son of God, to emphasize his divinity. But it is Jesus, the Son of Man, who came to seek and save the lost. 
He is a seeking God. He is a seeking Messiah. What's amazing about this is that if, if we were to assume that if the creator of the world was going to come down to his creation, he would want to rescue and save the good people, right? That he would want to look for the righteous ones, that he would want to look for the ones who have done it on their own. But that is not what we see in the Bible. God is drawing to himself those who are lost, those who have no righteousness of their own, those who are not capable of saving themselves because the reality is that no one can save themselves and no one is righteous. It's a matter of perspective. How do you see yourself? How do you view self and God from your own point of view? What view do you hold to? In Luke chapter 5, when Jesus is calling Matthew, who is a tax collector, and this happens to take place when he has one of those booths on the side of the road where he's just taxing people here and there, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumble at Jesus and his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. I have not come to call those who refuse to see the need for a Savior. I have not come to call those who refuse to recognize their inability to keep the law. I have not come to call those who think they are better than others. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 34, the Lord says, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. He says that he himself will do this because, in Ezekiel's day, the under-shepherds were unfaithful. They were not taking the Word of God and teaching it to the people of God. They were keeping it for themselves and isolating and not doing their duty of what a shepherd does, which is take care of the flock. Just as it is here in Jesus' days, his interaction with these Pharisees, the Pharisees and the scribes were judging everyone under a microscope of laws of their own creation. And then pushing people further and further away from God, making him seem unattainable, unappeasable. I know that some of you would have grown up in homes that, that had some of these characteristics, that you were never good enough to earn God's love or God's grace. What a crazy, unbiblical view to hold. The good news is that the shepherd himself comes and he draws in. And he still does that so today by his Spirit. What I love here is that chapter 14 ends in verse 35, chapter 14, verse 35 of Luke. It ends with, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? And then the very next verse in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Who is the one that is listening, and who is the one who is deaf? 
And it is important to point out here that Jesus does not draw the sinner and the tax collector in and say, there, there, you feel good about your sin now. You carry on, keep going on. No, that idea would have been absolutely eviscerated in the previous section that we looked at last week. The cost of discipleship says you have to die to yourself. It says you have to die to your sin. Put off that old sinful flesh that can do nothing but sin and put on the new discipleship coat that says, I am no longer a slave to sin, but I serve Christ and His purposes. And so Jesus teaches this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? What is interesting is Jesus' use of shepherds and sheep here. Because shepherds were yet another group of lowly in society according to the Pharisees and the scribes. And if you're not picking up on it, Pharisees and scribes didn't have a lot of friends except for each other, and even probably barely that. Shepherds were rough people. They were viewed as unclean because they worked with animals. And then shepherds were also working every day. You you couldn't just take a day off from shepherding. You had to tend to your flock every single day. And therefore, they were unable to comply with the Pharisees' man-made rules on Sabbath. Because they were in continual violation of those regulations, shepherds were perpetually ceremonially unclean. So for Jesus to ask the scribes and the Pharisees to imagine themselves in the role of a shepherd was insulting. But this was perhaps another way of Jesus to show the Pharisees and the scribes their own contempt and pride. Now, there would have been several shepherds looking after a flock as large as this. If you had a hundred sheep, there would have been several shepherds. So, one shepherd will go after the lost sheep. And based on the parable, it's the owner of the sheep who goes after the lost and not the under-shepherd. He's not the hired hand. Because the hired hand, it's not a financial loss for him if one of the sheep go missing. The sheep belong to the owner, just as we belong to our owner and our creator, God. Now, we also need to understand the nature of sheep. I've seen this video making its way around on social media, and I thought that it would illustrate this for us quite well today. And all God's people said, there I go. (laughs) You see, sheep are weak. They are defenseless. They have no claw. They have no fang. uh, And they have no internal sense of direction, clearly. In short, they are dumb. 
you begin to understand why Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that a believer should not think more highly of himself than he ought because we are sheep. We are not powerful. We are not mighty. We are not brave in our own strength. So here is the lost sheep. And the shepherd leaves his flock and pursues and seeks after this lost sheep. And he does not stop until he finds it. How many of us here were those sheep? How many of us here remember being lost? How many of us here remember what it felt like being lost and unaware? How many of us here remember what it felt like when we were made aware that we were lost? And how many of us here remember what it was like when we were found? I think sometimes we forget where we come from, which will come up in the parable of the two sons, how we can move from the prodigal son to the older brother because we forgot that God, what God rescued us from. You understand now why God is constantly reminding the Jews of being saved from Egypt, the, the commemorating the salvific event with, with a meal of remembrance. It's what we remember when we take the Lord's Supper together, remembering Jesus' atoning work on the cross, that payment once and for all for, this, for our sins. But the remembering is important. Paul is constantly reminding the churches when he describes wickedness and wicked ways, and he says, and such were some of you. It's not that you are a prisoner to your past. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but you must always remember what you were saved from, and that without a Redeemer, without a shepherd coming and pulling you out of danger, we would be lost. Well, then Jesus continues. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my, lost, I have found my sheep that was lost. Remember, brothers and sisters, God rejoices when the lost are found. God rejoices when the lost are saved. God rejoices when there is repentance. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is displaying the character of God. Lord have mercy. We need more of that being taught properly in our churches. The Pharisees and many of the Jews saw people in this way. Righteous and sinners. These are the two categories. But it was probably more like self-righteous and sinners. Well, at least we don't see things this way today, right, by anyone. At least we don't live in a world where we refuse to associate with people different from us. At least we don't hide out in our echo chambers and we feel good about where we are. 
and, and happy for those not with us to stay where they are. At least no one thinks or acts like that. If you don't pick up on my sarcasm, <laughs> sometimes I have to tell people it's just my sense of humor, which I guess defeats the purpose. But do you see, there are far too many people that are acting like this today. But do you see the character of God? He pursues the lost one. In fact, he pursues lost people with such fervency that he sent his son to die so that the lost may be found. He pursues lost people with such fervency that he sends people out to engage with them, to tell them the good news. He pursues lost people with such fervency that he does not give up until that lost one is found. And then he celebrates when they have been found. But you see, it says his friends and his neighbors rejoice with him. Do you know who's not rejoicing with him? The ones who are not friends with the shepherd. The ones who do not think that that was the right thing to do, that thought that sheep is too stupid or too dirty or too foul or too fill-in-the-blank. That one was unworthy. What is also interesting is that he says that there is more rejoicing over one lost sheep who repents than 99 who need no repentance because there is no rejoicing over the lost who think they are found. I don't want to read too much into this parable than is here, but a person who thinks themselves righteous who does not need repentance is also a lost sheep. But the difference is like we said earlier. What perspective does the sheep have? Do they recognize they are lost? Or do they think they are fine? Do they think they're with the 99? Or do they recognize, I'm lost, I've got my head stuck in a cave, and I'll probably do it again, but I recognize I have a good shepherd. There are a lot of lost sheep around us, congregation. Let us not harden our hearts towards them, regardless of their politics, regardless of their lifestyle, but may we be used by God to engage and pursue them. Everyone has to start somewhere. If pursuing the lost is a character, character trait of our God, if it is descriptive of, of, of Christ, of His Christ, and if we are trying to put ourselves in the mold of Christ, then ought we not also to desire to seek and save the lost? Not that we save them, but you draw people to Christ. You point people to Christ that He may save them. May we never be a church that gets caught up in thinking that we are righteous and that those sinners out there will just remain that way. That is when a church begins to die because you're not bringing in new people, because you're not preaching the gospel at that point. You're preaching something else, self-help or whatever it is. May God remind us that such were some of us, such were all of us. And may He give us courage to go out 
and share and speak with lost sheep, that God would draw them into his fold. I found this story a number of years ago. I think it illustrates our point here. Uh, I'm going to read it because it's… Uh, so, this is from Jim Simbla, who was, is the senior rector at uh, the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And these are his own words, so it's easier for me to, to follow along. He tells the following story. It was an Easter Sunday, and I was so tired at the end of the day that I just went to the edge of the platform, pulled down my tie, and sat down and draped my feet over the edge. It was a wonderful service with many people coming forward. The counselors were talking with these people. As I was, si as I was sitting there, I looked up the middle aisle, and there in about the third row was a man who looked about 50, disheveled, filthy. He looked up at me rather sheepishly as if to say, could I talk with you? We have homeless people coming in all the time asking for money or whatever. So as I sat there, I said to myself, though I am ashamed of it, what a way to end a Sunday. I've had such a good time preaching and ministering, and here's a fellow probably wanting some money or some more wine. He walked up. When he got within about five feet of me, I smelled a horrible smell like I'd never smelled in my life. It was so awful that when he got close, I would inhale by looking away, and then I'd talk to him, and then I would look away to inhale because I couldn't inhale facing him. I asked him, what's your name? David. How long have you been on the street? Six years. How old are you? Thirty-two. He looked fifty, hair matted, front teeth missing, wino, eyes slightly glazed. Where did you sleep last night, David? Abandoned truck. I keep in my back pocket a money clip that also holds some credit cards. I fumble to pick one out, thinking, I'll give him some money. I won't even get a volunteer. They're all busy talking with others. Usually, we don't give money out to people. We take them to get something to eat. I took the money out. David pushed his finger in front of me. He said, I don't want your money. I want this Jesus the one you were talking about, because I'm not going to make it. I'm going to die on the street. I completely forgot about David, and I started to weep for myself. I was going to give a couple of dollars to someone God had sent to me. See how easy it is? I can make the excuse I was tired. There was no excuse. I was not seeing him the way God sees him. I was not feeling what God feels, but oh, did that change. David just stood there. He didn't know what was happening. I pleaded with God, God, forgive me, forgive me, please forgive me. I'm so sorry to represent you this way, and I'm so sorry. Here I am with my message and my points, and you send somebody, and I am not ready for it. Something came over me. Over me. Suddenly, I started to weep deeper, and David began to weep. The smell of his person became a beautiful aroma. Here's what I thought the Lord made real to me. If you do not love this smell, I cannot use you, because this is why I called you where you are. This is what you are about. You are about this smell. Christ changed David's life. He started memorizing portions of Scripture that were incredible. He, we, got him to a, we got him a place to live, 
We hired him in the church to do maintenance. We got his teeth fixed. He was a handsome man when he came out of the hospital. They detoxed him in six days. He spent that Thanksgiving at my house. He also spent Christmas at my house. When we were exchanging presents, he pulled out a little thing, and he said, this is for you. It was a little white hanky. It was the only thing he could afford. A year later, a year later David got up and talked about his conversion to Christ. The minute he took the mic and began to speak, I said, the man is a preacher. This past Easter, we ordained David. He is an associate minister of a church in New Jersey, and I was so close to saying, here, take this. I'm a busy preacher. We can get so full of ourselves. Here's a man's life that was transformed by the gospel, who gained a, a knowledge of the will of God and, and, and who lives with joy, who was lost and now is found because of what Christ has done for him in paying for his, his sins so that he could have new life. May this be our prayer for many, that we wouldn't have a hard attitude, that we wouldn't be focused on ourselves, always being negative, but that we would be looking and praying that many would come and be transformed through this word and that God would use us. You see, ladies and gentlemen, that's discipleship. I dare think where any of us would be without it. But if you remember from a few weeks back, when Jesus says this kingdom is like leaven, this kingdom is like a mustard seed, it seems small and imperceptible, but it grows and it bears much fruit. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. May we never forget this simple truth. Let's pray. Father, you know my desire is not to use emotionalism as a hook. I, I, my intention is not for people to feel guilty. My intention is that you would, you have so displayed your love to us in the sending of your son, and even these words which sound so harsh to the Pharisees are actually so gracious. But some people just are stubborn and they don't have ears to hear. May that not be anyone in this room. But, oh Lord, would we have ears to hear? Would we recognize that we were drawn just like the tax collectors and the sinners? Would we see ourselves for what we were, what we have been transformed to, and that in the power of Christ, we go out and we take that message to the lost. No matter what they may look like or what they may, that they may not look anything like us. Or maybe they do look exactly like us. It doesn't matter. But if this is who you are, that you are a seeking and saving God, that, oh God, you would use us, your people, your church, your bride, to bring others into the fold. Help us not to turn a blind eye. May we not be a church that dies patting ourselves on the back, but a church 
that dies to self and proclaims Christ. For we, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.